Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground confession episode where we seek to further understand and apply the truths in the Westminster Confession of Faith. As I mentioned last week on our Pillar and Ground confession episode, you may want to approach these episodes in a different way. I find that the connection and the question episodes are easy to listen to as I go, but if I want to really dig in, the Confession of Faith episodes require me to maybe have a seat, a cup of coffee, grab a journal, a Bible, and a pen, and deepen in my knowledge of God. I hope you'll do that. As we begin today on our episode, Knowing God, His Wondrous Attributes, we continue to look at Westminster Confession of Faith 2.1. Just a few opening words, I would point us to the psalm, Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise, his greatness no one can fathom. We're going to talk about that today, his greatness no one can fathom, but we can have some understanding. One of the passages as you consider your study of God that I would point you to just for personal study would be Isaiah 40. It is a rich passage to know the character of God, and what I love about that text is the opening words of that chapter are comfort. You see, there's great hope, great solace and comfort in knowing God's character. The people of God who received Isaiah's words, remember, they're in exile. They would have been a shattered people who found themselves in incredibly difficult trials. But Isaiah tells them there's a way to comfort and hope. And so in verse 9, he says those wonderful words, Behold your God. I think most of us really need that in these difficult days with many trials. We may think we need all sorts of things, but we need to behold our God. As A.W. Tozer said, we wonder why we don't have faith. The answer is faith is confidence in the character of God. And if we don't know what kind of God God is, we can't have faith that comforts. So today, let's behold him. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, as we continue on in our study, the third sentence says that he is unchangeable, boundless, eternal, and incomprehensible. Consider that God is unchangeable in his immutability. We talked about this some last week, but James 1 verse 17 makes that clear when he says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And then Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, as clear as it can be. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. His immutability is a great comfort in a world that shifts and changes in our emotions that are up and down, that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Confession goes on to say that God is boundless, meaning this is referring to his immensity, that he feels all things, that he is omnipresent. First Kings 8.27 speaks to that, but God will God really dwell on earth? 
The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. The reflection there is on the immensity, the boundlessness of God. And because of God's omnipresence, one of the implications of that is you can't hide from him. He fills the earth. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 23, verses 23 through 24, makes that clear. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So, God is boundless. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. That does not mean that everything then is God. No, here is a creator-creature distinction. Everything has its life and its being in him. And so there's nowhere we can hide from God. We can suppress his reality, his truth that is put inside of us, but he is omnipresent. The confession says God is unchangeable, boundless, and then it says eternal. God is eternal. Uh, We talk about the aseity of God. That's a theological term for God's self-existence, that there never is a time when he was not, and there'll never be a time in the future when God will cease to be. Psalm 92 that we read last week, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God's name, I am who I am, reveals his eternality. Herman Bavink said, God is infinite concerning time, and that is he is eternal, and he is infinite concerning space, and that is his omnipresence. Remember last week, the confession said God is infinite in his being and his perfection, and part of his being infinite over time as his eternal essence. There's an apologetic here for God and the existence of God that I think is really important because we live in a world where the existence of God is is often challenged. And I think R.C. Sproul is really helpful to consider the existence of God and the aseity of God, the self-existence of God, and that, that it's a very strong apologetic. It's one that's very understandable. It's logical. And he goes on to say this, if anything exists, then something has always existed. If there ever was absolutely nothing, then nothing could possibly be now because you cannot get something out of nothing. He goes on, the law of causality teaches that every effect must have a cause. That's true. But it does not teach that everything must have a cause. Effects, by definition, are caused by something outside of themselves. However, we need not assume that everything is an effect, temporal, finite, dependent, and derived. Such a concept, if not only logically possible, but logic is is not only logically possible, but logically necessary. For anything to exist, something somewhere, somehow, must have the power of being. For without the power of being, nothing could possibly be. 
This is the truth of the eternality of God, and thus Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. The confession also says that God is incomprehensible. That though God is knowable and has revealed himself, he is incomprehensible. What does that mean? Well, Paul in Romans 11 says, verses 33 through 34, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You see, the knowledge of God means that we can have true apprehension of him. But the doctrine of incomprehensibility is that we can never fully comprehend him. This doctrine means there is absolute truth, but you cannot know it absolutely. Wonder and astonishment comes to us when we stand before the mystery of how little one understands about God. God's incomprehensibility does not compromise his knowability because his incomprehensible nature becomes imminent in his revelation of himself. And we're thankful for his manifestation and his revelation where he is a God who can be known, but not comprehensively. Let me give you a few implications. First, this may be surprising news for some of you, but even in heaven, you will not comprehend God. Finite beings cannot attain comprehensive knowledge of the infinite. Now, in heaven, will we have further new revelation when we're in new heaven and new earth? Yes. Will we understand everything about God and his ways? No. And here's the good news. It won't bother us nearly as much as it bothers us now. There's another implication concerning the incomprehensibility of God. Because absolute truth exists, but you can't know it absolutely. And because our knowledge of God is apprehension, not comprehension, this is the caution for every human being and every believer in Jesus Christ. When you think about God, think humbly. Think humbly. Because you don't know everything absolutely. There's another implication. When you think about God in light of the incomprehensibility of God, think dependently. Think dependently on revelation. Martin Luther wisely said, The hidden God is the revealed God. He has been pleased to unveil things to us about himself. So God is not totally unknowable. That's not what the incomprehensibility of God means. Instead, embrace and enjoy the revelation of God in his world and in his word with humility and dependence and a realism that will never comprehend him. The confession goes on to say that God is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, and most absolute. God is almighty. We've already heard of his omnipresence. We've already spoken about his grandeur. But his almightiness is his omnipotence, his power, that his power suppresses everything, surpasses everything in the universe. Nothing can resist his power or overpower him. And that's why Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures have six wings and they're covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. 
and day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The Lord God Almighty. God has all power. There's nothing in the universe that can surpass him. He's most wise, the confession says. That's his omniscience, his knowledge of everything. But it's really even more than that because Romans 16, 27 says, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. He is most wise. The confession uses the term most to show the excellence and the perfection of God above all things. Therefore, he's most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. But when we consider God's omniscience, that's that his knowledge of all things past, present, and future is complete. He has all knowledge, but it says he's most wise. What's the distinction of that? God's wisdom is a heightened knowledge that goes to deep practical relevance. God has all knowledge and wisdom. Therefore, it means, as R.C. Sproul says, that God not only knows all things, but he also knows what to do with them. That's wisdom. He knows how to exercise his government over them. He has never made a foolish decision or conceived a bad plan. Do you believe that? Confession says it's true. He's most wise. The implication of this, as J.I. Packer says, is this. Wisdom without power would be pathetic, a broken reed. But power without wisdom would be merely frightening. But in God, boundless wisdom and endless power are united, and that makes him utterly worthy of our fullest trust. He is almighty, most wise. And as I have quoted before, those two truths make this a reality. If we had all of God's power, we might change everything. But if we had all of God's wisdom, we wouldn't change a thing. The confession goes on to say that God is most holy. Isaiah 6.3 declares that they were calling to one another around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in deeds and wonders? The perfection, the holiness of God leads us to absolute trembling, awe, fear, reverence, humility. And then it says he's most free. And that means he's sovereign. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. This means, and this is countercultural in a world that wants self-autonomy, but this is true of God. God is sovereign and he has the right to exercise his control. From a creaturely standpoint, God's authority, God's free, that he is most free and sovereign, is he has the right to command. He has the right to tell us what we ought to do. His word is an obligation for the creatures to obey. And God, as most free and sovereign, cannot be overruled, 
Yes, he creates us with wills, volitional beings, but we cannot overrule God with what he has given us in our volition. Now, the implication of God as sovereign and most free is this. Humans seek autonomy. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to become like God. But it is God alone who has authority and autonomy. And what a challenge to the self-consumed minds and hearts of our own day. And then the confession ends with most absolute. He is supreme. Exodus 3.14, he is who he is. I am who I am. This term of most absolute describes God's authority. By saying he is absolute, we mean that he is beyond that of any creature. God acts according to what he is, and it cannot be questioned. And one of the implications currently on our culture is this, and hear this really clearly. An attack culturally on absolutes is an attack on God who is most absolute. That is something we must embrace and wrestle with as we live faithfully in this world. So before I close, just to review, God is unchangeable, boundless, eternal, incomprehensible. He is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, and most absolute. And the implications of all the omnis, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his grandeur, his majesty, is is summed up so beautifully by Zacchaeus Wine in his book, Sensing Jesus, Life and Ministry as a Human Being. This will be the closing word for today from Zacchaeus Wine. This is why we need a strong dose of God's incommunicable attributes. These show how little of a resemblance to God we have. We are not infinite, everywhere at once, all-powerful, all-knowing. And hear this. Forgetting our place as only human, we sadly grasp for incommunicable attributes and try to make them our own as we live and minister to others. And there is no comfort in grasping for that. We are creatures. God is the Almighty. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Pillar and Ground.